Well, good morning. This is attorney Stephen Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO, answering your questions, giving out some advice on this Sunday. And here we go into another week of interesting legal news, topics, information, and of course, your calls at 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. And uh, boy, it's been an interesting week. And if you're listening to this show or you're just tuning in, um, going on 26 years of practicing law. And, uh, you know, after all that time, I can say that uh, most of the time I say, if you can think of it, I've heard of it or handled it, whether it's zoning, real estate, divorce, bankruptcy, perhaps it's an elder care question, probate, uh, appeals to superior court, or even arguing before the Supreme Court, having done 14 or 15 jury trials in superior court, there's just an abundance of experience and knowledge that I like to pour on to this show for you every week. So that way you keep these little bits of information in your back pocket in case you ever need them or in case you have a friend who's perhaps going through a problem. Say, hey, listen, I heard that guy on the radio and this is what he said. And, you know, maybe you should give him a call on the radio at 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. So what are we going to talk about this week? There's been a a slew of interesting cases that have been percolating in the courts. And I like to talk about those cases and just kind of tell you what the different things are. And so I'm going to tell you a little story about this case. And it's kind of an interesting case. It has to do with a slip and fall injury. So many times when we go to a hotel or we go to a fancy restaurant, so to speak, maybe there's a valet, right? And they will, you give them a little tip and they take your car and they park your car for you. Well, a lot of times those valets are independent contractors, which means that they're independent of the hotel or of the restaurant. And often they will have a separate contract with the hotel or with the restaurant. So what does that mean for you? Basically, a lot of times, a lot of restaurants have their own valet just because it's easier and more convenient. But in many circumstances, if you go to, in this case, involved a hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, and if you went to that particular hotel and you handed off your keys, you're actually entering into a contract with a third party. Now, this third party then takes your car and parks it and you go into the hotel. Okay. So this gentleman was leaving the hotel, and at the time he was leaving the hotel, apparently a lot of people were leaving, and the valet had a slew of cars parked up against a curb, and he was trying to navigate around the way they were parked up against the curb to get to his car, and he fell. So I suppose at some point there was no settlement between the parties, and he was alleging that there was a uh, the curb was... Uh, perhaps eight inches tall instead of six inches tall, and somebody's at fault for his fall, and he was hurt. Uh, I assume the injuries had to be sufficient enough to bring this suit in the first place. So what do you do when you're a plaintiff? Well, you sue everybody because you don't know who is responsible. Uh, You know, so here we go. We had an independent valet company. We had the hotel. And so this particular person sued everybody and said, look, somebody here is responsible for this defect on your property 
this exaggerated curbing combined with the fact that I couldn't get to my car. Well, so the case eventually, eventually, probably it was set down for trial and it eventually settled for something and somebody's insurance company paid. Well, the hotel turned around and said to the valet company, well, I'm glad this case is settled. Now you owe us attorney's fees and you owe us other monies. And the valet company said, well, wait a minute. We weren't proven negligent, in other words. So what is the relationship between a, for example, in this situation, between the hotel and the valet company? Well, essentially, the valet company is a subcontractor. And as a subcontractor, the valet company had a contract or an agreement, let's put it in basic terms, to park cars and get paid uh, for this particular uh, hotel. <clears throat> well, this type of agreement is very common. And let me give you an example. So, for example, let's say you own a commercial property, you own a commercial restaurant or a business, and you hire a snowplow company. You're going to have an agreement, right? They're not your employee. So they're an independent contractor, and you're going to have that person come in and plow the snow to your property. What can you include in that snowplow agreement? And what was included in this agreement that made this valet company be on the hook? Well, apparently, because there was an allegation of negligence against the valet, in addition to an allegation of negligence against the owner of the property for the height of the curb, the valet company and the hotel had an agreement that said, I, Mr. Valet, agree to take this job and park these cars and hire people to park the cars and, and get paid to do that. But I agree to indemnify you and hold you harmless. What do those two words legally mean? Indemnify and hold harmless. Indemnification is basically a word that says, hey, look, if there's a problem, I'm going to take care of it. You're not going to have to pay. And it's fairly common. You see it in divorce agreements. You see it in probate agreements. You see it in contracts. Okay. And indemnification is where one party shifts the burden of risk. So in this situation, the hotel went to, when the valet company contracted with the hotel, the hotel went to the valet company and said, we're going to give you the job, but you're going to hold us harmless for anything that happens while you're on the job, which means you're going to indemnify us and hold us harmless and basically protect us from any claims that could arise from your negligence. And the allegation in the complaint was that, you know, the way they parked cars contributed to this person's fall. So there was a hint of negligence. So the hotel was entitled to indemnification. Now, very important how this plays out in your own individual life. And if you're a business owner yourself, if you own, for example, let's say you own commercial property, 
and you're maybe a landlord or or perhaps uh, uh, um, you own commercial property and um, you have a, a, you're not a landlord, you occupy the property, but you subcontract out for snowplow services. Most people do. You may want to put in your contract that, hey, look, Mr. Sub, Mr. A snowplow Company, if something happens due to your negligence, you're going to indemnify and hold us harmless. And that means that if we're sued, you're going to be responsible for it. Why would you do that? Let's just think about the snowplow, right? Why would you want that specific language included in your contract? Well, let's put it this way. Let's say you and your con your snowplow person, um, you know, you or it could be it could be anybody. I'm just using snowplow as an example. But let's say you and your snowplow person agree that if there is one inch of snow, you're going to snowplow and shovel the walkways. And uh, apparently, there's two inches of snow on the ground, and the snowplow uh, person was overwhelmed with the amount of snow plowing that he or she had to do, and didn't get there until it was two inches. But somebody slipped and fell. Now they're suing you. You may want your contract to have that clause that says, listen, if you don't do it when you're supposed to do it, you're going to indemnify us and hold us harmless. So that way we know we're not going to be responsible. So we're shifting the burden of risk. And this could also be, for example, if you hired a contractor, right? You hire a contractor, maybe to install windows in your home. And the contractor hires a subcontractor. You may want your agreement with the contractor to say, Mr. Contractor, if that subcontractor gets hurt while on my property, you're going to indemnify us and hold us harmless. So if they sue me, you're going to step in and take care of everything, right? So those two words can be very powerful words in the eyes of the law. And like I said, this spills over. One spills over to the other. For example, in a divorce, when you go through a divorce, there may be language contained in a divorce agreement that adjusts uh, who takes the credit card debt, right? Maybe that credit card is joint. So your divorce agreement might say that you agree to take the credit card debt and you agree to indemnify and hold your spouse harmless, which means if you don't pay it, he or she has the right to sue you to recover her, his or her damages. So we're taught what we're talking about here in the eyes of the law is a shift of the risk element that's associated with a particular contract. So when you hire that snowplow person, you're basically saying to that snowplow person, I'm going to pay you, but as part of this whole agreement, you're going to indemnify and hold me harmless if you don't do your job. Now that can be that, for example, this all came out of the hotel slash valet situation where the hotel ended up getting money from the valet company because the part of the complaint was for negligence on part. So they indemnified and held harmless. And so those two words can be very powerful words in the eyes of the law and can help you protect yourself. This is also, if you're a landlord, like not a residential landlord, most courts won't hold that uh, their feet to the fire like that. But a commercial landlord in a commercial context, 
you might say to your tenant, listen, you're renting the four walls. You're responsible for the space in front of your store. And if somebody gets hurt there due to uh, snow, uh, debris, garbage, due to some sort of negligence of not maintaining that space, then you will indemnify us and hold us harmless. And that means that the tenant is ultimately responsible for that. Now, what is the big picture here? Well, the big picture here is that whenever you're contracting with a person, maybe you're renting commercial lease space, maybe you're, um, maybe you're in the process of, um, of uh, hiring a snowplow guy, maybe you're a restaurant, you're hiring a valet company. Number one, you may want to shift the burden of risk to that person, right? You don't want to be responsible for their acts. But number two, you got to make sure that they have insurance in place that covers that type of risk. So if you hire a contractor and they give you a binder of insurance and it doesn't say contractor's liability insurance or something to that effect, or maybe it just has a minimum amount. $10,000 of liability insurance and you're handing them a check for $50,000. And, you know, even if you have this language in your contract, you want to make sure that you're always covered. Okay. So just a very interesting story and in how a contract can be used to shift the risk or liability by the use of two words, indemnify and hold harmless and how you can implement that in your own life. If you have a, if you're having somebody replace your windows and they use subcontractors, you may want the contractor to sign an agreement that says he agrees to indemnify you and hold you harmless. If one of those subcontractors gets hurt on your property, or if you're a commercial lease, right? You may want to have that in your commercial lease that says, Mr. Tenant, you agree to indemnify and hold us harmless. If somebody gets hurt while you're leasing this space. Just to add a layer of risk prevention on your side of the fence. Does it mean that you will always prevail? No. Are there exceptions? Of course, there's always exceptions in the eyes of the law. But making sure they have insurance, adding language to your contract are all elements that help protect you from claims from third parties where you really had no control over the situation. Stacking Benjamins with Joe and his good friend OG not only has great financial insight, it's laid back with humor too. The Len Penzo sandwich survey. I wanted to know, was it really cheaper to brown bag it every day or was it cheaper to go through the school lunch? And the most expensive sandwich of all. 46% increase. This is the first time a sandwich has ever touched five bucks. Before anybody gags on that though, it's a great sandwich. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. And so I'm just going to bring this uh, little story up. I think this is an interesting one. I, I hate to say this, you know, most of the time when we're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see those flashing lights appear behind you, you know, you've been nabbed, whether it be, you know, running a red light or perhaps you were going a little bit too fast that morning or uh, rolling through a stop sign, you know, and, uh, Fortunately, in Rhode Island, unlike Massachusetts or Connecticut, which don't have this rule, Rhode Island has what's called a good driving statute. Now, that means that 
every so often you have the right, if you haven't had a ticket in the last three years, to basically get the ticket dismissed. So it doesn't affect you negatively if it's for something minor. Now, obviously, if you're doing 120 down 95 and you're driving recklessly, probably it's not going to apply. However, this particular individual chose not to use their good driving record to get a stop sign ticket dismissed. And so what happened was they requested a trial and they went to trial and then they appealed it. Now, look, this person was pulled over. The police officer said he saw him drive through the stop sign, identified the intersection and gave him a ticket. Oh, seems pretty cut and dry there. But this person was trying to find a technicality. And the technicality was that when the officer filled out the ticket, basically he was saying the officer filled out the ticket incorrectly, so he can't be charged with that offense. Here's the rub, okay? When you get a ticket, a speeding ticket, a stop sign ticket, whatever it may be, it's civil. It's a civil penalty. So it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why 99% of the time, if you want to go down and try to fight a ticket, the reality is that if the police officer actually saw you do something, then most likely you're going to be found guilty if they appear at the hearing. So this person appealed the decision up to the appellate panel, and they said, all right, well, the ticket wasn't filled out correctly, sure, but he did testify to all these facts, so you're guilty. And then they allowed him to use his good driving statute. So they didn't penalize him for making the appeal, and at least he was able to use his good driving statute. But, you know, I guess... Uh, it's just an interesting quirk that a lot of times people might call me and say, you know, Stephen, uh, I was doing, you know, whatever it was, 75 in a in a, a 55 and I got a ticket for 10 over. What should I do? The first thing I say is go use a good driving record. Now, Massachusetts and Connecticut don't have good driving record. They have a uh, you actually you just get a ticket, you get a ticket and you have to pay it. Although a lot of times what uh, different states will allow you to do is sometimes they allow you to make like a donation to a particular charity or offer some sort of uh, restitution payment to some sort of um, helpful thing. And uh, in lieu of that, they'll dismiss the ticket and give you one free bite at the apple. I've had luck with that in Connecticut and in Massachusetts. So just so you know, to keep that in your back pocket. But Rhode Island does have the uh, good driving statute. So the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. And um, interesting question on marital settlement agreements. Okay. So when you get married, okay, this is this is really interesting. When you get married, you're actually entering into a contract. Okay, it's a contract for marriage. And so when you get divorced, you're asking the court to cancel that contract of marriage. And that's why there's a specific court, family court, set up to deal with those marriage contracts, right? And so in this particular circumstance, this particular individual reached a settlement agreement on the eve of trial with their former spouse. Now, that settlement agreement made specific provisions, okay, 
for beneficiary designations. In the settlement agreement from the divorce, it said that this husband was to, see, and you're going to listen and learn how one thing touches another. Husband was to name spouse as beneficiary and keep her named as beneficiary with the children as the backup for as long as he had the policy. So the policy was a $500,000 policy when they first got divorced. And apparently it was a universal life policy. So the policy stayed in effect. It was paid up. So the policy was just there. Well, he decided to change who was going to get what. And he was remarried and he changed the beneficiary and never notified the former spouse, right? So he passes away and the former spouse says, well, I know we had this life insurance because it was part of our settlement agreement and uh, contacts the life insurance company. And they say, uh, sorry, Charlie, uh, that beneficiary was changed many years ago. And as a result, uh, it money was paid over to the new spouse. So she hired an attorney who said, no, actually, that's incorrect. And they filed what's called an involuntary probate, which you can file, which means that even though somebody has a will as a creditor, you can file a probate against an individual to force an issue and then file the case in superior court. And they went to Superior Court alleging that there was a material breach of this divorce settlement agreement, this contract that was entered to terminate the marriage, and that the beneficiary designation should be rendered null and void. And the court agreed and said, yes, that that beneficiary designation, he never had the right to change it. And because he, he waived the right to change it in his contract, it didn't matter that he did it because he didn't have the right to do it. So the proceeds were payable to his former spouse per the marital settlement agreement. And so how, you know, how is that applicable to probate, to superior court? And why are all these different courts interplaying? You've got divorce court, probate court, superior court. And it's because we're talking about contracts and we're talking about how one contract in one court can touch several different other courts. You know, so the probate had to be opened because she had to make a claim for the asset. The superior court case had to be opened because she had to essentially sue the life insurance company before they dispersed the money and the former spouse, just in case she received the money. And then, um, all of that had to interplay with that final marital settlement agreement where that was the final uh, situation between the parties. And so it's very interesting, this interplay between three different courts to get to one result. And, you know, this plays back many times, for example, in that situation, husband waived a right. He waived the right in a contract to change the beneficiary designation. Well, that's enforceable in the court of law. And so if you waive that right, that means you no longer had the right to exercise it. So yes, he could fill out the form. 
he could change the beneficiary. And maybe he never told the life insurance company about this. But because he didn't have the authority to do it, his change was held invalid. And so that goes a lot, for example, when we talk about things in probate court, like undue influence, or we talk about things like coercion, where perhaps one child is alleging that somebody was unduly influenced or coerced to change their will or to cut them out. Okay. And undue influence or coercion are elements in probate court that you would prove to change how the will was written or to use a prior will. Also, understand in probate, if somebody lacks capacity, so for example, let's say a will was changed on the eve of somebody's passing, and you say to them, you say, look, uh, wait a minute, why am I cut out of the world and everything was left to Sally? Mom was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. It's right here on the death certificate that she died from malnutrition resulting from Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, we want to set aside the new will and use the old will because we want to prove that mom didn't have the capacity. So in one situation, the person waived his right to make those changes in divorce court, so he no longer had it. In another situation, they didn't have capacity to sign because they didn't understand the consequences of what they were doing. And so you have three courts, divorce court, probate court, and superior court, all touching on similar issues all dealing with contracts. And that's how contracts affect our day-to-day -day lives all the time. All the way through, they affect our day-to-day -day lives. They affect us whether we're doing the smallest of things or the most complex things. Whether you're getting married, that's a contract, or you're getting divorced, that's a breaking up of a contract, right? Whether you're, you're signing a will or a trust, that's a contract. And probate court is there to enforce that contract, and other courts are as well. So very interesting interplay between one and the other and how these issues affect one another. So here we go into probate again. <clears throat> now, here's a question <clears throat> that um, it comes up quite frequently, okay? Um, there's a difference between a trust and a will, okay? Many times a trust is treated as a private instrument. So if a person writes in a trust that the, that the um, trust is private and the beneficiary has no right to see it, okay, and they're named as a beneficiary, then they have the right to receive whatever they're supposed to receive pursuant to the terms, and theoretically, they'd have the right to see what it is they're entitled to receive, okay? If that's not in there, many times a beneficiary will have a right to review the trust itself. Now, absent that, they don't have the right to contest a trust. They don't have the right to um, go to probate court to argue about the trust. That doesn't happen because you avoid probate. How does that differ from a will? In other words... How does a will differ? Well, a will 
even though you write it before you die, comes into existence upon your death. It's like triggered. It's triggered at the time of your passing. The will is now an official document. I mean, it's an official document before you die, but essentially it becomes the uh, the directive upon your passing. And a will generally becomes a public record. So that means that no matter what, if there is a will in place, and if the will is filed with town hall, anybody can go look at that will. Well, here we have a situation. And this person sent this question over to me and said I could use it on the radio after I spoke with him. And I'm just going to kind of go over this question. And the gist of the question was, he wanted to know if he could contest a will if it was unfair. Okay. So this person says, I just received a check from my half-brother <clears throat> without seeing the will after my dad's passing. So they're, they're same dad, half-brother. It was not what I was promised. Dad always said everything would go 50-50. And... Um, now I received the small check and with a little note saying, here is your share. And I never saw the will. And so he said, my father, who was living with my half-brother, or my half-brother lived with him, was getting senile and apparently redid his will at some point in time without ever showing it to anybody else. Uh, do I have any rights? And so the first thing I told him was, do not cash the check. Cashing the check may be acceptance of what was written in the will in acceptance or final resolution of the claim, because now you're accepting consideration. And I told him, if you have evidence or can prove that your father was suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's, some sort of medical documentation that would evidence the fact that he wasn't competent when he changed his will, you may be able to contest that will. So he believed his father was worth over a million dollars, and there was only two brothers. And he believed that this check for it was some weird number, $8,000 or something, was what was written in this new will that was changed. But understand, there may be a situation where this other, his half-brother took his father to the bank and changed the accounts, put his name on as beneficiary, went to the life insurance company, changed the accounts, put his name on as sole beneficiary, or even put his name on the deed to the house. Now there is nothing to probate in the will because everything goes automatically to this person. So what do you do? How, uh, what can he do? And he said he was very close with his father up until the time that his brother moved in with him about a year and a half ago. And he said, you know, he always had a close relationship with his brother. He's tried to call him several times to find out what's going on. 
and his brother's just ghosting him. He's not returning any calls. He's not talking to him. So what types of claims would he have? Well, he may have a claim for what's called undue influence or coercion, where maybe the brother said to him, you know, hey, look, I'm not going to continue to stay here or help you if you don't give me everything. And, you know, that can get very scary. Or I'm going to kick you out of your home if you don't sign the deed. That can get very scary, especially if you're elderly and you're in a situation where you're in complete reliance on one person. Also, maybe there is medical documentation that evidences that there was a um, <clears throat> that there was a situation where dad was not competent. Maybe at the time he made all these changes, but we don't know. And the problem is we don't know, and you can see how much it's going to take to get to that point. So if there is a situation where you believe that one parent or a parent is being unduly influenced or, you know, starts not talking to you anymore or starts acting funny about finances, you know, you may want to just inquire and say, what is going on? You may want to look up the deed and see what's going on. So how do I help this, this gentleman? How do I help him? And he says, you know, it's not about the money. It's about the, the principle of it, that if that happened, you know, he'd be very unhappy. And, and dad was in a nursing home the last six months of his life anyway. So what did his half brother really do for him? And so obviously we can do some investigation. We can do some checking. We can dig around. He can, we can ask that perhaps he try to get the medical records to see specifically whether or not his father was suffering. Or sometimes doctors will say that they'll write in the record that, you know, so-and-so keeps bringing father here and father appears physically afraid of this person. You never know what's in a medical record until you review it, but you can see it's an uphill battle. So when you have that influencer influencing one parent to make all of these changes against the other ones, it becomes an uphill battle. And if somebody stops communicating with you, they stop talking to you, or they disassociate themselves, or perhaps this stepbrother insulated dad to the point where he wouldn't let him, he wouldn't let the brother call or talk on the phone. Then in that situation, you may want to be proactive on the matter. You may want to say, look, I think there's something going on here. I don't like what's going on. Maybe before something happens to dad, I'm going to file some sort of action, whether it be guardianship or some other action to see if I can take control and get and find out specifically what's transpiring. But if you if you wait until the end, it is an uphill battle. And you can see that proving undue influence, proving coercion and proving um, lack of capacity, which is like that dementia Alzheimer's is a very difficult, it's a very high bar to jump over, especially when you're trying to create it after somebody has died. So in this situation, I mean, 
I'll keep you posted. I think he's going to be moving forward. And he did say that I was allowed to talk about this on the air. Um, so, you know, if something does transpire, I probably will keep you posted and let you know, just so you have an understanding of how this case might progress. But the first thing I told him, do not cash the check. Do not sign everything. Make copies of everything and let's have a meeting. And that's where that led to. So fairly interesting case has to deal with probate, has to deal with wills, perhaps change of beneficiaries, perhaps change of deeds prior to death. We don't know but I'm going to try to get to the heart of the issue on that. Hey guys, it's Susie Schuster, and I am so excited for my new podcast coming out this fall. It is called What the Football with Susie Schuster and the Princess of Darkness, Amy Trask. If you're looking for a new podcast to listen to about jargon, heavy-legged waist benders, this is not for you. We're going to have big girl conversations, and we are going super deep to bring you weekly guests that you won't find anywhere else. It is What the Football with Susie Schuster and Amy Trask. We're Ever you listen. Now that my name, and you know, we're talking so many different things and so many different topics. I know that uh, I, I kind of go on a little bit about these topics so that way you kind of have a really good understanding of different areas of the law and how one touches the other and the other touches the other and different types of uh, comments and and questions that happen, you know, as we go through life and how this could affect you and how you can protect yourself. Uh, you know, I find many times that when I'm talking with clients or dealing with issues, it's always best to talk to people one-on-one -on, -one or, or on the phone, at least to get some sort of understanding. Uh, I think a lot gets lost in text messages, emails, um, a lot gets lost with the uh, messaging services and things of that nature. And I feel that many times you really can't get a fair assessment of whatever your situation is unless you're able to talk to somebody. And that's that's what I do in my practice. That's how I've been practicing for you know 25 years now, where I find that even a three-minute, five-minute conversation gets to the meat of the issue gets to the issue of what is your case about? Do you have a case? What is your legal situation? What type of help do you need? And how how can I help you? Or, um, you know, what is it that you're requesting from me? And I think that all of those things come together when you're talking to somebody like myself with so much experience in, in these different areas and fields of law. So that way we have a really good understanding of how things will be affecting one another and how one thing can touch another thing. One of my last topics today had to do with business and estate planning. Now you've heard me talk about this many times. I talk about trust. I talk about wills. I talk about having something in place. I talk about what does your deed look like? We talk about uh, uh, asset planning and different types of things. And one of the biggest problems that I see that happens is a lack of planning for business succession. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that if you have a business, whether it be a small business or maybe it's a very large business, most of the time, believe it or not, uh, many people have nothing in writing as to what happens to that business when they're no longer here. And let me just give you an example. Let's say you have a 
uh, a fairly large marketing company. And maybe you have about five or six employees, medium size. Okay. And you've been doing marketing for all these years and you have a very good client base and you have a partner and you and your partner have never put anything in writing. Never, nothing, zero zilch. What happens if, forget about the part that what happens if you're going to break up and who buys who up, just what happens if one of you isn't here? There's 50% of shares of stock, let's say, that theoretically would go to your partner's estate. How would you stay in business if you were in business with three of the partner's children? How would that look? How would it stay in business if maybe you never liked his or her spouse? Um, or maybe their will says everything goes to charity. And where did their 50% of stock goes? How does that work? How do you buy them out? Or does this end up in a deadlock situation where it goes to receivership and basically you lose everything you've worked for your whole life? That's what estate planning is about. That's what business succession planning is about. It's about doing something while you're alive to protect what you've, what you've created, what you've built, and also to ensure that it goes the way you would expect it to be, that that is your final agreement. So vitally important when we talk about these issues. Again, whether we're talking about trust, we're talking about probate avoidance, we're talking about real estate, mul multiple properties, single properties, um, commercial, all of these issues touch one another. And it's so important to think about it before you have a tragic incident and you're sitting in my office or your partner's sitting in my office saying, what do I do now? And that's when all of a sudden, you know, the knives come out and it becomes a problem. Now, my name's attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. I want to thank everybody for listening today. That's the end of the show. You know, we've uh, we covered a lot of topics. I know we talked a lot of legal stuff covered a lot of topics, talked a lot of different things, and I hope you got some good information this week. And of course, I will be live next week as well, giving you these legal tidbits, topics, and information. You can always find me online at spllaw.com, spllaw.com. You know, we have, uh, we redesigned our website. We did a nice refresh. Uh, we've got a little chat box there that you can chat with one of my people. And, you know, they can send that over and make sure that, you know, I get your information or you can fill out a contact form or you can just pick up the phone and give us a call at 401-490-4900. 401-490-4900. Listen, this is attorney Steve Lavecchio, host of Legal Tips. I truly appreciate you. I know you appreciate me too. Everybody be safe. Have a happy week and we'll see you next week. Teaming with Bank of America. Mix a little sports analysis, pop culture, and great interviews, and you've got the Rich Eisen Show podcast. Mike Florio, who's coaching for their gigs this year, do you think? Brandon Staley, the Chargers, has to be. The way that they ended the 2022 season. And I think Robert Kraft put everyone on notice, including Bo Belichick, that it could be over. And Rich, every owner is thinking about the easy part is getting rid of the guy I have. The hard part is finding a guy who's as good or better. The Rich Eisen Show podcast, wherever you listen.